0: What do you mean by hit record status? Okay.
1: Uh, okay. I'll tell you this. I won't even go so far as to call it hit a gold record or, uh, you know, a million Spotify streams, which whatever the fuck that means. I'm talking more about a record that gets played by everybody in our community. You know, the hip hop community has always been tight and that, that, form of music has moved forward like a locomotive for one reason everybody's on board if buster rhymes comes out with a record that's hot tomorrow produced by whoever the fuck it is whether it's pharrell for the moment whoever it is everybody who plays hip-hop is playing that record across the board you go to um to power 105 you know uh, power in la hot 97 everybody's playing that record now, Lenny Fontana comes out with a house record that's got a buzz going. Louis might not play it. Timmy might not play it. Teneglian might not play it. MK's doing uh, fucking reads for a million people. He may not play it. So we don't have that. Lenny plays Lenny. MK plays MK. Louis playing Louie. Todd's playing Todd. So, so we have a community that's sitting there. Oh, yeah, we're going to stick together. Oh, yeah, house is going to be the new thing. Yeah, no, not, not going to be nothing. We're getting further and further away from ever having. So you mean the fra- you mean fragmentation
0: is basically what happens? We're all fragmented now. Well, listen, I, it. I, I think
1: there were very. You get a couple of records that that kind of seep in the crowd. Oh wow, this guy also played. Oh wow, this guy played it. But there aren't there aren't many. I think the house the house scene is very broken up. And now everybody's a producer. I mean, we used to say this in the in the late '90s. You know, when I started making records in '93, you know, there was a part of like, oh shit, sure, like I could actually make a record now, and I actually have a little bit of a fucking brain. Like I, I can't even imagine the way today is. I mean, it's everybody gets the same uh, same computer, same program, same plugins. Everything sounds the same. That's another thing. We're not we're not getting hit records because we're not getting different records. Every record I had success with was a different sound. The bomb, different. Funk phenomena, different. Tori Amos, different. Everything but the girl. Well, that's not really different, but it was it was Todd being whatever the fuck he was doing. But the point was everybody had different equipment. So whenever we get a demo from Armand or whoever it would be, it's like, oh shit, like you can tell there were different things working. You get a demo today from those same 20 guys, they'll sound the same. Everything's clean. Everything's got the eight bar thing. There's nothing that's um, disrupting the quanti- quantization of whatever the computer is doing for you. The computer is correcting your mistakes. That Some of those mistakes used to work. Some of the distortion used to work. Things that you were doing in your bedroom that you couldn't control, that might have, you know, the dirt of an SP-1200. Or that hum. That, that, that was part of it. Furious George on my label, my boy, me and Nicky always laugh. I'm like, he used to, on one of the records he gave us, like on SP-1200, it kind of corrects everything. And he used to give us these demos. And once I like, and he like, the thing would miss. I'm like, I don't even know if that that's possible you could do that. But that was the beauty. I love that. Because it was so raw. And it was so not polished. And that was, um, listen, the funniest thing is, when Almond took the John Nick record, The Captain, to make You Don't Know Me, that was a demo. Nicky brought that demo to my office and I said oh that shit's fire he goes what do you mean I says we gotta put that out he goes "This flange in the whole fucking thing I said no we gotta put that out and, and then Nicky I gotta say he always like I do whatever I want to do so I put that out on Todd's label with the flange going throughout the whole fucking thing it was like a demo and Armand called up and goes yo man I did this uh, track I, you know, I used that record you did and like you know who the fuck expected that it turned into what it turned into, um, but you know, but that was a demo that Nikki did, and if you listen to the original, there's flange going through the all. We didn't even fucking mix it, but it was it was the groove, and it was undeniable. And I think that that's that's still what gets me excited. I get demos all the time. I basically tell people, listen, if you give me something that I could do, I'm probably not gonna want it. But if you give me something I, I never thought of, I'll put that out. So you give me, you flip a disco record it, when it's something I never thought of, you got it. We'll put that out. But if you're going to give me just a generic fucking eight ball loop of the night the lights went out, that's not going to get me excited. But, you know, because Nikki and I, I mean, there aren't many records that we haven't touched. So it's, it's, I like to see when people dig a little deeper and get crazier with this, you know, sample tracks and stuff like there is an art to it nikki and i you know i say this all the time so many people in our genre have changed to try and accommodate people oh the cutters are hot oh tech oh everybody's trying to chase the next thing nikki and i are making the same fucking records since 93 if you like them come we welcome you there if you don't like them don't fucking buy them End of story. I'm not going to try to accommodate some 17 year old kid who just found out about a house records through some fucking nonsense guy in his area. I'm not going to, I don't accommodate that. See what
0: guy. I told everybody? You come to tell, me. See what I, tell, what I told you all? Nikki you and see I. See what I said? He's not going to hold back.
1: See hey, what it, I mean? If, if, if Nikki and I make records in 20 years from now, they're going to be the same records. You like them? Come get them. They're beautiful. If you don't like them? Go to somebody I, else. I can't even go into this yet. I need to roll the tapes. Let's the roll back. We are real to
0: real. Bring the real to real back. I got to go back to the Plaza Suite. You went way too far. Yes. You went to killing me over here. I'm going, got to keep you on track because I need to get all of it. Okay. Yes. You work three switches. You get the DJ.
1: Yes.
0: You get his sister's suite 16. You move
1: forward. You, I guess you start doing mobile work? Come on. Well, I was doing I was doing mobile even before I met Danny early on. So from 80 to 82, I was doing a lot of mobile. Once I got the taste in the club, obviously, it was hard to go back to the mobile head. But I still had mobile work that I would do, obviously, for money. I mean, back then, a couple of hundred dollars, a couple of hundred hours, and that was a big suggestion. Plus, having a record habit, my, my drug habit was records. You needed to pay off the records and stuff. So, um. I was doing that, and um, I I kept, you know, and I try to make different connections with record people and DJs. The one thing I will say is, you know, everybody's a DJ today. When I first started spinning, 79, 1980 in Brooklyn, I got to tell you, we had, there had to be 40, 50 DJs in the neighborhood. Like, I look back and say, shit, we had so many DJs. And, you know, there were some good ones. You know, there were a couple, but I made a lot of friends. My boy Sal de Benedetto, which, you know, we were 10, 11 years old. We were still boys. And, you know, we met for music. I met Nikki, actually, in 82. Um, I knew of Nikki, but we actually connected in 82. But yeah, I always met. And the other thing was I wrote graffiti for a long time. And graffiti in the 70s, as a kid, we were there for, like, the birth of graffiti. So even though we were a lot younger, we were doing what we were doing, in trains and poles and blah, blah, blah. And... That got me to the black and the urban areas and the Puerto Rican areas. And that's when I really was lit up musically. I was like, shit, like this is, I'm at a party with all black guys and I'm like the only white guy. And I'm listening to these DJs playing shit I've never heard before. Then I go to like a Puerto Rican roller rink called Park Circle. And these fucking Puerto Ricans are just doing magic on the, on the dance floor with skates, crazy shit. I would just sit back in shock. And all of this music was just coming to me. Now I get it, and I present it to my people and my gigs, whether it's mobile or club, and I love that. And it was opening. It was just everything to me was a door to the next thing. I never had, you know, pe- you know, I, I'm I'm prejudiced against, like, you know, I hate everybody equally. I love everybody equally. So I don't have like, oh, I hate this group of people. Like that would be the most moronic thing in the world because you get so much from everybody there were so many things and so many people and situations that you need to be in and you know i was lucky enough to know in the moment a lot of the time because a lot of times you don't know it when you're in the moment of how great something is but almost every one of those times where i was uncomfortable at first i'm like i'm gonna get fucking killed over here when i got past that part i'm like this is incredible this is like, this is a culture. This is something I would have never known if I didn't write graffiti. If I didn't hang out with this guy right here, he would have never would have turned me on to this guy who now has me in this place in Red Hook. So I was, was very it? thankful for the opportunity. You know what? I'm going to say one thing. Opportunity is everything. I, I, You know, the more I think about it, I wrote two books. I'm in the process of writing a couple other ones. But I got to say, opportunity is everything. And it is so hard. You got that it's book in front of you? Put it up. I'm going to show a couple. Well, yeah, Listen, people. You go to hey, you know, people we, my... got, we got Journey into uh, Music, Color, Other Situations, Phenomenal Book, all about a lot of my record collection, picture disc, colored vinyl. Um, The 7-Inch Market's Hot. You got to get this, which is from I Left My Heart in San Francisco to I Lost My While in El Segundo. Um, crazy seven inch rarities that you're never going to see. Um, both of them are available on Amazon.com. Lenny Fontana, I think, is going to buy the first 50 people who uh put they threw something in the comments. Lenny Fontana is buying them both for Christmas. <laughs> the first yeah, 50 people I
0: had. everybody so, um, gets a book free
1: today. It. It's everybody, like, everybody, everybody wait, wait. wait, hold
0: books.
1: on, hold on, everybody, look under your chair. Yes, exactly. A lot of, <laughs> you have number five <laughs> on your chair, you got the books. So, but I I do believe opportunity is everything, and um, you have to take advantage of the opportunity. And it's it's hard, it's hard to get the opportunity. I can kind of go. I could segue into my jobs if you want me to go into that situation.
0: Well, I want to um, know. I want to know the transition. You know, okay. I know you played pallets. I know you played some of the Queens clubs. I know you were around. You know, give us that those yes. times because okay. I know you. I know you're breaking into the business like we all were. We were all yes. breaking so, into so, so come
1: on. So, so a very, very key person in my life to this day, love me to death, my man Juan Cato. And um, I was in RPBC, Eddie Rivera's record pool. Oh, nice. That was quick there. Um, And Juan and I were in RPBC. And one day I was up there. I was up there a couple of months before he started. And he comes up one day and yeah, I introduced myself. He goes, yeah, I'm Juan. I spent a little more East in Queens. And we we just we had one of those relationships. We just instantly hit it off. And Juan's been like my brother since that day. And um, I went to his clubs and I got to know him and I saw what he was doing. What he was doing at the freestyle era was unheard of. Nobody did what he did. Uh, you know, Latin Rascals, TK India on the stage, like you know, he was he was behind some iconic stuff. And I see all these people doing freestyle things and the freestyle resurgence. Juan is a guy. That was so key. Um, you know, the, the, the bookings and the setting and making sure the accommodations were done. And, and then he introduced me to people and I would go with him. And Juan was a guy that was wired. So we'd go to Mickey Garcia to Mack He'd take me to the labels with him. And um, he really liked the way I spun. And he felt that when he saw me playing everything, he was like, you know what? I want to take the back seat. I want you to be the DJ. We're gonna do the promotion. So he and this guy, Vinny Grillo, got me on stage in Staten Island and Pals and Queens and other clubs, Bora Bora on Steinway Street. And we had a bunch of places. And to this day, I mean Juan helped me with these both books. He, you know, he's co-writer and co-producer of the whole thing and um still makes records. He's relaunching Digital Dungeon. And he um one of I think my favorite things about Juan is you know, he never tells me no. You know, I have a million ideas and I kind of talk myself out of them. If I was like, Yo, Juan, like, you know, we have to go build a fucking twenty-four-story building. He's like, All right, let's go. Like, never tells me no. And I love that about him. And and he knows a lot, man. And he's an educated guy and musically knows his stuff, artistic, just all around. You know, and he, he's did a lot for me. And he was very, very influential with me. In that mid to late, your know, latter eighties, and then, um, you know, through him, I met Chris Barbosa. Chris Barbosa became a very dear friend of mine. And Chris got tight and George Lamond in nineteen ninety. Um, they had signed him. Well, George Garcia, but became George Lamond. And he had this record release party um, for the Band of the Heart remix. And while I was there, I saw Todd. And, and Todd was always the guy to introduce everybody to everybody. And um, I was there, and he had just put out the Finger Trips record. And it was a record by this guy, Kenny Gonzalez. I'm like, yo, what's that chrome? My record's hot. I says, who's that guy, Kenny? So he pointed, he goes, yo, he's right there. So I walk over to him. I had no idea who he was. I said, yo, I'm Johnny D. I'm Kenny Dope, blah, blah, blah. And we became like brothers. It was. Um, it was kind of an instant thing. He was working at the record store on 50, um, Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn. I was in court stenography school. And he had just, he was just about to start doing records with Louie at that point. That was like 1990. And then he and I just grew to friendship and stuff. And um, watching him make records and stuff um, in 1993, he said, listen, you got to start making records. And he taught us things, and you know he was just, you know, a fucking absolute genius and uh, unbelievable guy to learn under because he he was just, you know, another guy. You know, talent wise, you just when you work in the studio with certain people and you watch how they operate, it's um, you, you don't get the impression that they even know how good they are. And I would watch Kenny do things that, you know, were just, and this is pre all the bullshit for the SSL board like you know, the most ghetto shit. And he was doing stuff that was just iconic. And um, he taught me and Nikki how to do things. And then we started making our records. And then in 94, um, I, I guess we'll go, we'll go back and forth, but I figured while we're on this, I'll keep moving. In 94, um, Tommy Mustard, when I had gotten very close for the previous couple of years, and we went to see Louie one night, Sound Factory Bar during a snowstorm, because Wednesday night, rain or snow, you were at the sound factory ball. No, I was. He, that Louie was the church. You know, that was where everybody was on a Wednesday. And um, Tommy and I went for dinner. We went there at three o'clock in the morning. We left and the whole night. I was like, "Yo, I I feel these house labels are hitting the wall." And he's like, "Well, why don't you, you know, why don't you start your label yourself?" So he goes, "Listen, I'll do your distribution. You sign everything, and um, shook on it. We shook hands." And that was the birth of Henry Street. And I went to Kenny, who was like my boy at that time. And we were very close. And he gave me my first record. And he was like, yo, you know, and he, you know, instantly got, you know, visibility worldwide. And then from there, and I just, you know, I had a lot of connections I was making at that time. And things just started to flow. And, you know, that obviously I had big success down the road. But um, it was, you know, very organic and... I didn't set out. Oh, I'm going to make money. I'm going to be rich. It was really all. I think I could do things better than what's out there. I think I know this. Now I was working at sin in 1992, which was street information network, which is a promotion company. And as I'm working as a promotion person, I'm promoting incredible records and I'm and I'm promoting incredibly garbage records. And I'm sitting there saying to myself, you know, this, I guess, was feeding me as far as a guy who's about to make records with my equipment and a guy who wants to start my label. I'm like, wow, there's so many mistakes people are making, and they're just wasting just wasting time, and I was very focused on how I wanted the label to have a certain sound, and um, my philosophy with Henry Shewa... I remember I was getting a lot of these house records with these guys playing keyboards, and I was like, they play keyboards on top of like a Salso record, and I'm like... How are you gonna, you know, draw a mustache on the Picasso? Like, how are you gonna Vince Montana loop and you're putting some bullshit keyboard sound on top of it? I was like, I just didn't even stand that. So I was like, if I take a disco record from 20 years ago and I make it sound hot today, I'll get 20 more years out of it. That was it. That was the flight. It was nothing to do with I want to rob people. If anything, I was paying home, you know, homage, homage to these people and these producers and everything. It was, there was no disrespect meant whatsoever. And, um, you know, then a lot of people started doing the disco thing. I mean, I think Nikki and I, our production is pretty, we're kind of in a class of our own as far as the way we make the records. We also hear them a different way. You know, I think when Kenny, you know, gave me The Bomb, you know, which is, you know, a tremendous record for the label and everything, um, I would have never, I would have never heard Street Player that way. So Kenny doing that was exactly what I said before. I would have never done that. So that was what the beauty, I mean, of course it was a tremendous record, but the beauty of it as a person who was also making records, I'm like, I would have never touched that. And you did that. So he heard that that way because he didn't necessarily know that record the way I did. So I think that's another thing where we were all, into different types of music. I mean, Kenny was a big guy with breaks and beats and Latin stuff and house, and you know he was very rich in other areas where I was the pop disco kind of R and B. So I think together when, when we would, I always said if we combine that with stuff together, um, that that's a pretty impressive situation because we both together, um, I think we cover every note in the history of music. Let's also talk about Street Information
0: Network, Vince Pellegrino. I guess that's where you get your teeth into understanding
1: how the the behind the scenes works. Well, yeah, I I tell you, I think Tony Monty. You know, the first time working there, he sits me down and he says, "Listen, the first thing you gotta know about the music business, it's got nothing to do with the music." And you know, very, very important, important thing to tell me and. Really horrible thing to to kind of go over in your head because you realize that there are so many factors. You know, people think, "Oh, I'm gonna get this producer and I'm gonna do it at this studio. We're gonna use this microphone. We're gonna get this fucking drummer." And this. and you you know, you put all this shit together. What does Outcast say? You could you know you could plan the best fucking picnic, but you can't predict the weather. Whatever. It's like you could do all this shit. But if the man upstairs isn't going to give you the the nod, it's not going to happen. So I, I think I learned working at Sin that you have to plant a lot of seeds. You know, I've had records on Hemisphere that have sold 300 copies that are my favorite records that nobody gave a shit about. I've had records on Atlantic that were my favorite fucking records I did. I you know, ate hundreds of records there that sold three copies. I didn't get caught up in oh, this was a success, so it's my favorite. Obviously, when you have the success, it's great. But what does the success do? It gives you the opportunity to do more shit. When I was at Atlantic Record, well, I'll go back to Sin, but I'll get to Atlantic. When I was at Sin, I had a lot of friends at different labels, so I was I was doing promotion, but I was also helping people with a and because I was very wired to people in the studio. I was with Kenny almost. I mean, we were in the studio all week. There was always something going on. And between Kenny and Louie from 91, I mean, they, those guys were literally, you know, seven days a week. They were always working on something. And then Tommy Musto as well because I started on Northcutt in 94. So everybody around me had some kind of a situation going on that I was always there. And while I was at, street information network rich christina who's a good friend of mine was doing promotion at atlantic and he was given everything but the girl and they said i had to do mixes so he sent it to me i knew the record and i i knew of the group i knew there were a folk group and stuff like that and i went to todd i was very close with todd at the time and todd didn't want to do it the budget was horrible and todd just did i says listen todd this record it's like, you know, it's great. The thing about, the thing about the remix that's so important that people don't realize, it's not what he did, but it's what he didn't do. Cause it's one of the most minimal mixes he's ever done. He did correct the piece that nobody ever discusses. There was a part that was fucked up with the album version that it, it's always kind of funny that nobody realizes it, but he corrected, well, that was Bill Clack, the engineer, but there was a part that was corrected. But his minimal take on this mix, whether it was because he really didn't want to do it or in his head, he was getting paid so little money. But I knew the record was important. And when I got to Atlantic after that, I wound up servicing it five times and it wound up being a number two pop record. And it was Tracy Thorne speaks about the involvement everything else in the book. But that record put Todd through the fucking stratosphere. At that point, he was, you know, so he didn't get a lot of money for it. But what it, what it did for him everywhere else was just um it was the biggest thing i mean todd was on fire for years after that and then um obviously we discussed the Bucketheads, which um bucket was the fifth release on my label and um how that came about which was uh kind of a funny story is i had um armand's release coming out on um the old school junkies it was the next release on henry street and i was in the car tommy musto myself and Kenny were in the car going over to Brooklyn Bridge. And I said, yo, Ken, you got to hear this new Armand record. And, I, and it really, it's like one of my favorite on the label to this day. Like, yo, you got to hear this shit, man. And we put the cassette in and, you know, Kenny's listening to it. And like, he's not feeling it, you know, he, and, and he's, and he's not only is he not feeling it, but I think he's kind of pissed that I'm sweating Armand. I think there was, there was almost that, you know, you're my boy. Like, well, like why are you, why, why are you sweating? i like, what the fuck? Like you, you're my boy. Like what the fuck? It was, the, it was that, it was that kind of, it's like, you're my boy. Why the fuck are you, you know? I'm like, yo, this shit. And Oman, you know, he had that power where he gets me with records. That motherfucker, I had another guy in the studio that's just quick, gets it, crazy, Um, has a crazy way of working and we connect, you know? Anyway, I played a record. And Kenny's just sitting there like, you know, totally not feeling the fucking thing. And the next day, he calls me up. He goes, come downstairs. Pulls up in front of my house in his green BMW, puts the cassette in. And we're looking down my block, which is the water, which is right, right, two blocks away from me is the water right by the fucking Trade Center. And I'm looking ahead, and I'm hearing a five-minute intro. you know it's like you know so the first minute goes by too you know by the four i have no idea what the fuck it's almost like is he like punking me like i don't even know what the fuck is going on at this point but i mean it's hard it's, it's his drums and you know finally and it kicks in and he's not looking at me he's looking straight ahead for 15 fucking minutes 14 minutes and 53 seconds whatever the thing is so it goes to the end I see all oh, that shit's incredible. I'm like, I, I don't know who the fuck is going to understand it, but it's fucking incredible. So he goes, yo, you got to put that shit out. And he gave me the B-side. And we put the record out. I wound up doing the edit, which, you know, which was a big thing, the treatment letter, which was hard to do. And um, we put it out. And it, it really just, it, you know, I had put other records out before. I had four records before that. and They all were doing things. But this one was just—I remember Louis calling me from Italy. He's like, "Yo, nobody has your record here." Every time Louis would travel a different part of the world, Yo, they don't have the record here. Everybody's selling out. And then uh, the Canadians' quality came to me. I licensed it to them, and the Italians came. And the Italians, you know, it's rough because I'm Italian. I love Italy, but you know, you got to do—you know—you're gonna get fucked with the Italians. You say, "So who's gonna fuck me the least?" You know? And so I wound up giving it to media, I believe. And, uh, yeah, I don't think I ever saw a fucking penny. And, uh, then Positiva came, Nick Hawks came, great guy, Nick, and kind of jumped the gun where we didn't have the sample cleared. And we wound up paying probably the biggest sample clearance fee in the history of, um, samples. I mean, Puffy is was even in the vicinity of what the fuck we paid for that sample. And, um, It was a lot of hard... But did Chicago give you guys a hard time at first with it? Well, what happened was there was a lawyer that represented them, and she just really... uh, She's responsible for a lot of my hair loss. Um, Chicago, the group, didn't give a fuck because I think Hawk Walensky and... um, Danny Seraphine. I don't even know if they were still part of it at that point. And they wrote the record. So because they wrote the record, they had the publishing interest, the master, Chicago-owned. They were no longer through Sony. And ironically, they went up getting through fucking Rhino, which <laughs> that would have been nice if it would earlier because I was part of the company. But listen, it all worked out. And, I mean, I, I share the history books with Chicago. So you go back to the first question you asked me, how do you find music? My sister, which turned me on to Chicago— Blows my mind that I have something in the history books with that. And um, listen, it was uh, big, still a very credible record, which I love the fact that people care 25 years fucking later. I mean, that's pretty impressive. Did and, you um, did you write the figure in the in your story of how much you paid for the clearance? That clearance was thirty thousand dollars. Puffy at his peak was paying five thousand. The reason why. Well, what happened is, well, listen to me. Sampling that I could do a three-hour show on sampling. Sampling problem is, you can The reason why people don't want to clear samples is when you're doing a dance track. Let's just let's just say right now, you and I say, you know what? We have this idea. Let's do a Johnny D. Lenny Fontana thing. We're gonna take "I'm Coming Out" by Diana Ross. Wow, that's a great fucking idea. You and I go to we get it. We flip the fucking thing around. We go to Universal to clear that. Then we have to get the clearance through Nile Rogers, the whole chic thing with the publishing. They're going to treat us like this is going to sell 5 million albums. If Puffy goes to them, he they're going to treat him like it's going to sell 5 million. Now, we might only sell 300 pieces of vinyl. They're not going to make the accommodation for us. And that's the issue. So that's why people say, you know, you, you're raw, whatever. It's I think more people would want to do things legitimately. But how, how do you tell people well, house music isn't as important (laughs) or house music isn't like real because that's in essence what you're saying. You're saying that Biggie is going to sell 5 million albums and you're going to sell 15,000 pieces of vinyl. So how are we going to work that out? And I just, you know, so because Chicago and kind of Positiva jumped the gun, that's why they were able to go to go for our throat because the record was out already. It's not like today, oh, it's up digitally, take it down. Two seconds is down, nobody even has a memory, it's gone, see ya. Just as you know, positive what did they ship two hundred thousand first fucking week, you know, like it was it was an issue. So we got hit over the head, paid a fortune of money. Um, but you know what? The record's still a hit. And how I, I, as we I, all I, say, a hit is a hit is a hit is a hit. It, no it, what it, and I, I gotta say, I think it's the most successful. Disco sample hit in house history. I mean, I I don't know of another that's next to it. I think it's the biggest one. And it's still credible. And then you get like a situation with Pitbull. So now you say, okay, so Pitbull, which I, in my heart, I think Pitbull would have come to us, but those Italian 117, whatever the fuck those guys who did other where they ripped off the bam, 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 the four notes. Uh, that, was, order, that was Nicola Fasano. Yeah, okay. So, so that guy, so instead of them coming to us, Patrick Moxie supposedly went directly to Chicago they fucked Kenny and I out of that, which was wrong because that wasn't Street Player. That was the bomb. Those four notes are the bomb. Kenny turned that into a different copyright. So... It's a it's one of those weird.
0: So does that situations. fall under does that fall under the category of an interpolation because he rephrased it differently?
1: Well, listen, I'll put it to you this way. I, I had this argument years ago. You know, Puffy would find a sample, right? And then Irv Gotti would come out and sample Puffy. To me, it almost shouldn't be allowed. So it's like those guys in Italy basically sampled the bomb and let's just say they had a better deal with Chicago than dealing with us they were able to like that's bullshit those four notes are the bomb that's not street player, that's a new fucking song, when the RZA took um, the Charmels with Cream ding 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 -ding. and he looped that that became Wu-Tang Clan cream, okay? If you now sample the cream instrumental, that's a RZA thing. That shouldn't go back to fucking the Chomels. In other words, the Chomels are going to get their taste because the RZA cleared it, which gives Isaac Hayes and that whole situation their money. But that should say, so-and-so sampled Wu-Tang cream from. RZA, Isaac Hayes, and boom. Pitbull should say sample from, boom, the bomb, Kay Gonzalez, Denny Seraphine, Hawk Walensky. That's how that should be. And we got shifted out of that, shafted out of that, which was a fucking, um, that's bullshit, quite honestly. That's bullshit.
0: So I see. So you're saying they should pay tribute where tribute needs to be paid. But say,
1: listen, it's just what it is. Listen, in the court of law, they're going to say this is a Chicago master. I get that give me 20 jurors and say, listen, I'm going to play four notes for you. What do you hear? Bam, 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 bam. Do you hear street play or do you hear the bomb? The bomb made those four fucking notes. Can I tell you the truth? Then None st- of you are going against me. No, no, no. I'm going to tell the truth.
0: When I heard it, a first time the Pitbull record, I says that's Kenny's record. But that's what I said. Mean, Hold on. Hold on. But I do know where the history of the record comes from because we knew it was Chicago Street Player. Yes. In that one. Okay. But it's so iconic because we remember hearing, in fact, that horn part is more popular from the Bucketheads. Of course it is. Than it was from the no, Phil Ramone production.
1: Been, but, am I, I so correct? Phil so. Ramon produced the original production, correct? Yes. But look at this way Street Player in the history of Chicago, was probably one of their only stiffs. Chicago 13, worst-selling album they've ever had. This record made that one stiff a hit. Literally, in the history of Chicago, their least-selling record ever, Chicago 13.
0: I know. This is right in between them doing the power ballads and ending their 77. That was
1: the whole thing, yes. That, that was, was one that one
0: album where All they time. went... Yes. where Actually, they got dropped because of that last album. Yeah. That was... That was the
1: one that went, see ya. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, but but listen, of course, but but listen, the sampling thing, that's something that over the years, I i don't know where that goes. That's the court, a different judge, what people hear. I had a Tori Amos record, which went to number one. Arista does Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, which they put people hold on on top of it. And I'm like, that's the fucking Armand track. And like, nobody wanted to like go sue Arista. I'm like, what are you kidding me? And they wound up sampling... Well, your, point, your, your argument's correct, because what happens is, as the
0: generations change to the generation that was coming up at that time would have been in a 19 to 25 age group, okay? Which would have been that pop pop record of Kenny Dope. Would have been a popular record. They would have known it as the Bucketheads, not ever knowing about a Chicago record. Okay? But, 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 but if
1: you go a step further than that, the truth of the matter is, Street Player wasn't that big of a record that even people our age would know it. I mean, listen, you're a club guy. I'm a club guy. This is what we do. It's all a club record.
0: That was a club record all the way.
1: But, like, your, your wife might not know that. Your wife might not. My sister didn't know Street Player. And she turned me on to Chicago in the first place.
0: I had to tell my neighbor because they all—they know those records, three, you know, uh, uh, twenty-four to one, and all the big records. Yes. Saturday in the Park—that's Chicago. When you talk about Chicago, you say Saturday in the Park, "Color My World," "Beginnings." Yeah, beginnings. All that, yes. And I love them. And in fact, it's funny—I went to see them in Coney Island, Chicago, and they actually performed the record. Do the fucking bomb. They do the street player record. I'm shocked.
1: They actually, they actually do the fucking bomb.
0: Yeah, I know. What I'm saying is they actually perform. They
1: actually do the whole rendition. They do a part. when they do? Bah, bah, th- uh, yeah. yeah they, and the crazy part was, I renamed it wrong. It says "Street Sounds" swirl through my mind. I said, "That's not gonna. That's not gonna flow right. These sounds. wrong. I wrote that. That's what I said. It said. Meanwhile, I re- it says, who'd you say that
0: to? Wait, 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 wait. Who'd you say that to?
1: I wrote it on the fucking record when Kenny gave it to me. There was no. Did you call Kenny? Did you tell Kenny this is what we're calling you? No, what happened was he called it the bomb. So okay. I called the bomb, parentheses, these sounds fall into my mind. But it's saying street sounds swirling through my mind. I didn't like the whole swirl. I thought people were going to have a hard time with that. I thought these sounds falling to my mind sounded easier. And that's what I went with. They performed that gig saying these soundboard. I, I heard, I, I heard it. I was. Bugging you remember, around. I
0: called you. Remember, I called you. I said, I went to Coney Island. I sure, I, I actually filmed it. I put it up. He says, I don't believe this. I said, That's look,
1: crazy. They're
0: performing Chicago. Put in the long fucking words. They changed the words too. I know. So, so here's here's something that because because I want you to talk about the Atlantic story, but here before we even go to the Atlantic story. The um case of Pharrell and Marvin Gaye.
1: I, I don't believe that whatsoever. I want to know that, your take on I that. I thought that was total bullshit. I thought that that almost that almost came through as some racist shit. I don't even know what you call it, but but, but Pharrell's hair black. So I I don't really understand that. I know Pharrell. I met him. I knew him before he blew up, and Rich Christina was tight with him, and we spent a lot of time. I don't. First of all, I was always told you can't sue for drums. I was always told that because the bucketheads drums have been lifted by a million motherfuckers and I was told you can't go after that. That thing, it's not even a sample. I, I, I cannot believe that I think that was a wrong well, how thing. does it categorize then? Is it a replay?
0: What would it because when you listen to the one to one, when you listen to the one to ones, it's very close but so wow. but but like I said you know how
1: many drums have been lifted by there are so many real drum loops that have been robbed I didn't I didn't hear that I didn't even hear it like when I heard the thing I mean personally, I can't stand got to give it up to begin with but I I, I I cannot believe that they had to give up money I think honestly there was a it was a backlash from Robin Dick Robin Dick is not liked Robin Dick got on the sun Robin Dick pissed somebody off honestly. I'm going to tell you the truth. He was with that chick. He cheated on her. Something with Robert Dick. And I, I honestly feel that's why they went after him. I really do. In my heart, that's where that was. Okay. That All right. Okay. All right. Well, that's a good thing. You know what? I always listen, say. Listen, you're telling me what Mark Ronson does, Uptown Funk. Okay? So now you're going to tell me he does Uptown Funk with Bruno Mars. You do Uptown Funk you up. So now you do that, right? So you bring that to your AR guy. Most of these AR guys don't know what the fuck they're talking about. So now you put it out. Everything's all good. Then somebody says, hey, wait a second. Oops, upside side your head. Say, oops, up. Side. All of a sudden, oh, wow. The gap band. That, that's. That's a fucking different story. That was the first thing I said when
0: I heard it. I said, that's gap band line. Read yeah, yeah. with, with the rhythm and all. Just change the
1: words. You just you, you know, you have a lot of people that go for it. And listen, some people get lucky. I just told you the Tory Amos, which we'll get to. They fucking robbed my whole shit. And we didn't even go after them, which I I, I even got almost earning about. I was so pissed. I was like, how can we not go after them? So um there he is. Number one music guy in the world. And I'm an Erdogan. Ha <laughs> Nice little joke that right there. Okay, but,
0: uh, so so <laughs>
1: <laughs> all right.
0: All right. So you do Street Information Network, eventually that ends. You start Henry Street with Tommy's North. I I, I start Henry and Street. Silvio to Credit. Silvio Silvio, Mahe- rest
1: Mahe- in peace. Great guy. Mahe- Phenomenal times there. And we are, we did a lot of great things and a lot of great, great memories. And I get a... Craig Common calls me to come to work at Atlantic and um, it was a hard move because I was very tight with Vince at the time and I left and I got there and I um, I loved it because I, I, I was going to have, now I was going to be able to work with artists and now I was able to say, okay, let me use my area of expertise, what I think. So even though I was doing promotion because I had put the missing together, I'm coming in with the bucket heads, you know, whatever. So now I'm the guy. I'm not just doing promotion. I'm doing R And guy like East Move, that is God to me. I get to work with him. He, MK, that at that point was kind of just slowing down. I was like this MK nut, and um obviously uh, Kenny Louie and Tommy, and just putting on everybody. I thought whatever. It was a phenomenal opportunity, as I said before, and. I did a bunch of records. and But when they hired you, what was your job title officially? It was supposed to be just um, crossover promotion. And then I had switched it to crossover music because I encompassed A&R so I was A and and doing promotion at the same time, but I was involved with every end from the marketing, whatever. I would sit down and do the labels. I redid the labels. That jacket with all the records—that was my design. I did the same one for him. Those are Nikki's records because they don't want anybody to touch my records. So Nikki let me use his records. We photocopied them at Atlantic, and uh, you know it's, that's so that that jacket. I mean, I, I brought back the old A and shit, and uh, it was great. Listen, my Atlantic years were unbelievable and um i had a phenomenal time i had a great run and i did some heavy damage there and the, the, one of the people that gave me the biggest opportunities was um vicky Germains, who was the head of marketing she made sure whatever came through that door they met with me whereas AR stuff and promotion stuff they kind of like yeah here and there but vicky makes sure oh pet shop boys Got to meet with Johnny D. Oh, boom! And then what did she do? One day she said, "Hey, John, we have this, uh, we have this girl Tori Amos that we're gonna, you know, I want you to meet her, and we, we should do some stuff together." So there was a place called Addition Salt, uh, Chinese place, incredible, right by Times Square, by the Theater District. And myself, Vicky Jamies, Tori Amos, and John Witherspoon, who's now Vicky, um, Tori Amos's manager, used to be her road manager, and we go. And I have no idea who Tori is. And I'm starving. I didn't eat all day. I was in meetings all fucking day. And I'm just like, yeah, could you pass the fried rice or whatever? She's like, oh, man. And we're sitting there eating drinking. And we're really, really cool. We're getting along. And I think she loved the fact that I had no idea who she was because everybody was up her ass. So I said, listen to me, Tori, worst case scenario, I'll do mixes. 3,000 DJs who never heard of you will hear you. Best case scenario, we'll have a hit. So she's like, all right, whatever. Everything's all good. I get to work the next morning, 10 o'clock in the morning. I put on my computer. My computer is flooded with internal emails. Oh, my God. Were you with Tory? Did, did you keep a fork? Did you keep the spoon? Did you have a napkin? I'm like, these people are fucking nuts. Then I looked into how big her reach was. And I was like, holy shit. Like, she's, you know, really fucking, she's big. So I said, listen, I have this idea. Let me get 10 cassettes. And I'm gonna send them out to 10 people I think I did Junior Vasquez and MK and tenegli all different I said do me let me know what song you think on this album the boys for Pele album you would want to do so people got back to me with different things and it was a record called horses and different things and I really wanted to use MK because before when I was at sin I was promoting MK I was basically MK's manager without getting paid I was MK Eddie Medora That was in the room with me. Wanted to jump out the fucking window. I was playing MK all day. He's like, "You gotta stop." And it was just MK the bruh, bruh, bruh. every fucking dub. I was just I couldn't get enough MK. I would take a break for Dr Dre G. They you know, crawlers right? all the but way. No, but it was this. I was, was just got I crazy. Was, I was so. Yeah, and I I, I promoted that close by the way, but it, I mean, this is free, even the early shit. So, anyway, MK, M- Mark, and I got very close. I'm very close to his brother. Mark knew I was doing Marcy Webber, who was his manager, knew, like, listen, this fucking guy, Johnny D, like, he's promoting you for free. Like, Vince wanted to kill me. I'm like, Vince, this guy's like the hottest thing. Anyway, I want to, so what do I do? I got this Tori Amos project. So, I go to Armand. Armand says, I'll kill whatever you give me. So that took Armand out of the picture, meaning great. Whatever I get from somebody, Armand will do the other side, whatever it's going to be. So MK says, I like this professional widow record. So let's go on record and give MK credit. What was not for MK? The Armand stardom might not have happened. because Well, let's say superstardom, because Armand was, you know, Armand's Armand. I mean, you can't take shit away from him. But this record put him through the fucking stratosphere. And it was MK who said, I want to do professional widow. So he gives me professional wit. I give him the parts. So I give them to Armand. This is a true story. So MK's doing it. And MK puts together a great remix. But he keeps the vocals in, which say, star fucker, just like my daddy. Explicit, whatever. But it's a little bit. But, you know, MK did his dub, loved the whole thing. I give it to Armand. He said, listen, having a hard time with the vocal, I can't get it, you know, in time. So I said, do a drop. And just put as much in it Because at this point, I have no idea. she's going to be offended? shes she going to be into it? Is she hip? Is she approved? Who the fuck? No, I don't know what she was going to be into. So I wanted to get approval. So I said, listen, do a drop. And then build it back up. And for the DJs that are fucking whack, we'll do a thing, just a dub, where there's no drop. Which is exactly what he did. Which turned into the formula. Then it was the spin, spin sugar, the fucking sneaker pimps, and the fucking uh, New Eureka Runaway, the Faithless. Then that became his fucking sound. But that was my fucking idea anyway. Comes to the office with the dad, the MK mix I had, I liked it, it was cool. But you know, it was you know, I was like, you know, it was a great house mix. I put the Armand mix in. Now my office at the time was literally the size of a shoebox, and I'm sandwiched between the heavy metal guy and like the light FM chick. Okay, I got these crazy JBL speakers and things. And I put on this fucking thing. I look up and my I got nine people in my office to like, what the fuck is this? They're like, I don't think i could. Now I'll be saying, bring it close to my lips. It's gotta be big. She was raped before. So I'm like, oh, my God, like, he's got no fucking idea. Is she going to now get flashbacks that are rape? All this crazy shit's going to work. My- but the track is fucking undeniable, right? So I'm on set. I'm like, yo, you fucking destroyed this thing. It's incredible, blah, blah, blah. I make a cassette. I send Tory the thing, the MK mix, the Armand mix, whatever. Month goes by, I don't hear shit. I hit Vicky Jermaze. I said, Vic, have you heard from Tory? now I haven't heard nothing. month later, Tory calls. She says, Johnny, I'm in Germany. My tour bus broke down. I put the cassette in. Everybody went fucking crazy. You got to put this out. Wow. Opportunity, right? I finally got the opportunity to do it. I put the fucking record out. In the history of the music business, I don't think there's been a P&L like that. Almond always did. We were very close at that time. Did me a great favor. Didn't charge me a lot. MK didn't charge me a lot. The only person who worked the record was me and this girl in the uk who's my girl that was it nobody spent a fucking dime so millions of copies one of the biggest successes for fuck atlantic in music because it was just me i didn't hire any
0: so what it cost fund. was it cost for atlantic to put this record out and what do you think was the actual total insight at that,
1: for- time, <laughs> at that time i gave which is funny Todd had gotten eight thousand for missing when he was getting twenty and change. Okay, but see, I wasn't trying to lowball, guys. For me, I was trying to stay in the game. I didn't have the luxury of a Frank Sorrell or a Hoshcarelli where to have a thirty, forty thousand dollar budget. I was getting these bullshit budgets. I was like, guys, I wanna, I wanna get DJ Sneak to do tour. Like I was, I wanna bring the underground to the fucking pop world. That was my goal. I wanted to you know, mesh worlds. I wasn't, okay, this guy's big right now. I I wasn't, I wanted to create the next motherfucker. That was my goal. So I didn't, I was trying to, I I had to beg for money. Armand got 10. He was turning down 80s, literally 80 grand turned down. He got it for 10. MK, eight. Okay, what did it do? I mean, MK is having an incredible resurgence right now. What did the Tori Amos record do for Armand? How many records did he do for eighty grand that nobody gave a fuck about? This record put him through fucking space. Now, he's an incredible talent, and I'm not going to sit here and claim all talent. I was I fucking discovered him. But, you know, that's a big fucking record. That's Funk Phenomena. Big record. So I'm tied to a lot of these records. So whether somebody wants to sit back and be like, yeah, J.I.D. talks a lot of shit, well, you could say that, but it's all kind of fact, and it's all... I'm not saying anything kind of out of line. I mean, when you look at these things, I mean, I look at it this way: if I'm Almond and you say Johnny D, if I don't instantly think of you, don't know me, Tori Amos, Funk Phenomena, which are the three highlights of his fucking career, I mean, I, I, I don't know. Uh, am I crazy? I mean, I, I don't, I don't really understand that. So I, um, I've I understand. Had, it. I I've,
0: understand. Had
1: diff- I've had different people. You know, just just you know, I let I call, me let, me I, let I call, me. I
0: call the house music. Let me play devil's advocate. So. Let me play devil's advocate for a second.
1: Yeah,
0: Lenny. You know, I know you're friends with Johnny, but you know, Johnny's always got to say me, 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 me. Why? You understand that, Johnny? They all say to me, "Why do you say I did this?" I'll, t- I'll tell you why. I, and I, you I,
1: explain I, it in your I, words. I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you why. Because for whatever reason, there's the Ronnie Dangerfield no respect factor. I don't know if it's a white thing. I I, I honestly, I don't know what it is, but I mean, history, history. If you want to sit back and say you did all these fucking things, I mean, it's, it's, it's in the books. I mean, I, I if I wasn't here to tell this story, anybody doing a fraction of research is going to tell you my involvement. Or well, you can look at the fucking records and look at the credits. I mean, it's not It's not rocket science. These are things that happen. That right there, everybody dance. I pulled those multis back in 96. To this day, there are people ripping off those multis, doing mixes. Everybody and their mother became a multi-track remixer. How many guys did I give it to and how many people have it? How many guys took them from me? How many guys traded it? How many guys sold those multi-tracks? Sold them. That's another story. How many guys? But look at that playlist. Masters at Work, Todd, Musto, Morales, Jason, Arif Mardin, Black Science Orchestra, John Nick, I don't know who those guys are, Paul Simpson, Jazzy Jeff. Look at that fucking lineup. Has that ever been done? I mean, that didn't sell tremendously, but that's pretty fucking impressive. It's pretty awesome to be able to pull off an album that level. Pretty impressive. On top of the fact that you're doing this at a company that. Rhino didn't understand me whatsoever. I did the Larry Levan comp and the Ashburn Simpson and Old Dirty Bastard and uh, Brandy, and they looked at me like I had four fucking heads. They don't understand any of it. I had, I had hundreds of projects on hold before I was let go, and they um they don't really understand black music. They don't really care, you know. Their philosophy is we have Madonna, we have Metallica, we have the Eagles, we have Genesis. They're gonna pay our bills for the next twenty years, so. Who cares about Ten City? Oh, by the way, congratulations on the Grammy nomination, Ten City Byron and crew. Just found out about. Did you hear about that? Nice. And Maurice
0: Joshua, they're all in it. They're Maurice in it in there too. Yeah, he's part of the Grammy. Yeah, he's. I saw he put. I congratulated him too. That's he's part nice. of the album. God bless. God bless. That's nice. But let me understand the, the political corporate level of corporate music industry. You know, you worked at Rhino Atlantic. The whole you're doing the back catalog. You're working crossover promotion, you're doing A and da 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 da, and such and such. And you have this idea that you want to put this remix album together. What's the pecking order to get that off the ground? Like
1: what? what who it's, would it, it is? it's It's very hard because you you know this kind of music. You know, rhythmic music is um, you know. By nature, it just doesn't sell the numbers that are going to excite a major label. So, you, you you have to have other things in the marketplace to point to. You can't say, Listen, I'm Johnny D. I'm the fucking man. I got reach to everybody. I'll get all these guys to do stuff for me with an incredible uh, discounted rate or whatever. They're going to look at it and say, Show us something in the marketplace that did what you're saying it's going to do. And they don't even mind if you lie, but I don't like to lie and I don't want to embellish. So, I want to be like, listen, I'm doing something that this is uncharted waters. They don't like that. They'd rather me say, this thing came out on MCA and it sold 1,500 copies. That's what I want to do. Don't give me the green light then. But I couldn't find something comparable because everything I wanted to do was always different. So that became, um, that became a hard part of my job. Ashford and Simpson... I had to go to the CEO of the Warner Music Group. Basically, I had a fake out Rhino saying, "Listen, Edgar Bronfman wants this to come out." I threw Edgar Bronfman, the fucking head of the company, I threw his name out to get Ashford and Simpson done. Could you imagine that? Ashford and Simpson, two of the biggest icons in the world, they weren't going to let me do it. I, I mean, did. I, I, I did. Was, I got, he, what was the reason why they wouldn't let you do it? What'd they say? Because. They they have a philosophy of the people that are going to make a difference. They'd rather put out the T-Rex catalog with bonus material. And like I said, the Metallica, the Genesis, the fucking... They had just purchased the Bee Gees catalog for a 10-year, $30 million deal. So they were reissuing all the Bee Gees shit and all the stuff Barry Gibb had done. You, know, you have different people in place. And everybody wants to prioritize what they want to do. Me being the guy in the East Coast for a West Coast company, I thought that was the best thing in the world. I'm like, wow, I'll be the New York guy. And to me, it worked the opposite way. They looked at it like, oh, this guy's not here. We got to chop five heads. Boom, first guy gone. So I lost my job at Rhino for pure geographical reasons. I had nothing, it wasn't performance-based at all. I had stuff on board with Cold chilling. I had Tommy Boy stuff. I had so many things I was about to do. Never had the opportunity. There's that word again. Opportunity. Need the opportunity. It's all about
0: that. And then from there, that you know, it's like they always say the train stops right there. What happens right from that moment? What 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 gears do you change? Or what's the next step? Where do you see life going now? Because things well, are changing.
1: Well well what happened what happened was it was it's very, very listen, I I honestly Could not get back into the business. I sat with people at Sony Legacy. I sat with people at Sirius and Music Choice and all these places. And not to sound like an asshole, but I'm overqualified for almost all these positions that were there. So if I would sit down with somebody and say, listen, you know, I'm willing to start at the fucking bottom, they'll look at me like I'm crazy. Or with today's world, they could just Google me and they're going to see all this. They're going to say, how is this guy? Gonna start at the bottom, cause my thing is, you give me the opportunity, I'll get to Ahmed early. I'll start in the fucking mailroom, but I'm gonna be with Ahmed in two months. That's a fucking guarantee. That's me. And that was and the, the problem. Point. That was the
0: problem. What they saw.
1: because well, you got you got uh, their jobs uh, it, it, on the line now. So, but the thing is, I don't want their jobs. I want to go. I want you to give me the opportunity to do what I do, like at serious XM. If I was programming that disco channel right now, that would be the most undeniable fucking thing you've ever heard in your life. I would do shit for that for, can't get up there. I can't get in. I have my giant D experience, favorite thing I've ever done in my life. It puts a smile on my face ear to ear all day long. I can't, I mean, people, if you listen to it, let's do it for an hour. If you don't feel what I'm doing, blast me. But seriously, go to Live 365, the giant D experience. I promise you won't be disappointed. Um, you know, I want to do that somewhere. I would love to be on like the serious app and say, listen, give me six months on the app. Maybe we'll give the bluegrass channel a fucking break. You know, let's see if I can bring some people that are alive into the thing. And uh, whatever. Well, the studio 5040. But I can't even get a meeting with these people. I can't get a meeting back at Rhino. The old douchebag that was the GM just came back there. These are guys that don't understand Black music at all. Like, they don't care. You're sitting on, I say to myself, I say to them, guys, let me bring some money in. I don't want to change the quarter, but you know what? Let me turn dats that i want on a shelf to some thousands here and there. Let me just start doing little things. And, I, and what would I do? I'd bring people in from our world to now sample or reintroduce, go deep into the catalog make compilations that now movies and commercials could maybe sample and use and license. Let's get into this black music that we own the largest, richest black music catalog that we're doing absolutely nothing with. You could go to YouTube and there could be 5 trillion songs there without people like myself, who is a tastemaker, and people that are saying, hey, Lenny, listen to this. But without me doing that, What are you doing on YouTube? It's just, you know, it's great that YouTube is there, but we have to direct people where to go on YouTube. So yeah, the information's there, but there's stuff that people are never going to get to that has three views. So, um, I need a person with balls. That's what, for, for the next part, listen, I have my label. Things are great. I do what the fuck I do. And I'm hustling. I'm spitting here and there. I do whatever I got to do, but, the truth of the matter is to get a person that has balls and a little bit of juice and say, you know what? This is a guy that with the books and all of this stuff, I'm not coming halfway. This is, and if it's somebody who's got a problem with me or whatever, they still can't debate my place in this game. So you can sit back and say, well, oh yeah, Johnny, me. Okay, great. Mimi, but really, you're gonna do what? Am what am I saying? That's not true. What am I saying? Who am I taking credit for that?
0: Well, let's be honest here. If you don't tell the story, yeah, story gonna tell? It? No, but I always say this is why this show was created. I tell each of the guests. I say the same thing. No one's gonna tell the story or paint the picture better than the person that was actually
1: there. Yes. So I I think that, listen, I think that the downside a lot of the time is you do have people that um, have a bad recollection or they have fucking amnesia or there really is, listen, I'm not doing this show for the ego side. Do I have an ego? Of course, I think we all do. Some people try to downplay whatever. But ego, I mean, how could you, when we do what we do, it's ego based lenny fontana spinning here name up and lights that's fucking ego that's what we do you you go to miami oh this guy whatever like that's what it is you, you don't have to be the guy shitting, sitting there beating your chest but you're on the beach and you went to music conference and you see a helicopter go by tonight a club whatever lenny fontana but like it's this ego all over it and that's what people are attracted to in our scene more than anything because if that wasn't the case, how could you justify spending $200 to go and see fucking Tiesto? I'd see my cousin, Well, one day she goes, oh yeah I'm going to see Tiesto and the tickets like I don't know, $150. This was in Staten Island like five years ago. And I'm like how do you know this guy? And she looked at me like, what oh, a fucking deal in headlights. I'm like, do you know any of the music he plays? And she just looked at me she didn't know what the fuck he played. But but they do such a good job of promoting the guy that that Dutch machine. That's that Dutch machine.
0: Yeah, that's a Dutch machine. That Dutch machine is powerful. Armin Van Buren, that kick or uh, Chris, all those people coming out. They yeah, they have that machine well, well maintained and oiled. Yeah, you don't even cool. know what records these guys are doing, but they're out and then and they got 150 city tour.
1: Well, I, I, listen, I remember I saw something from New Year's a couple of years ago. That guy, Mark Knight, basically played Play the World, but he sped it up. And the place is, like, losing their minds. And it's like, I talked to Nikki like, a day after, and it's, it's like, so fucked up that it's, like, we're not mentioned. It's all record. He probably heard it and decided he liked it and was going to redo whatever it is or just put a drum under it. And when you're in that position you could basically do whatever the fuck you want to do. Like, how are you going to gonna start a post? Mark Knight ripped off my shit. It's like, you can't do that. So you basically sit back and you watch this guy just do whatever the fuck he wants to do. You try to acknowledge the fact that, wow, those five, ten thousand 10,000 people are fucking out to your shit. But it's, um, it's a mind fuck. There's a lot of that that goes on. A lot of people rip people off and... Um, it's very easy, especially today. You know, people, oh yeah, I'm doing a promo and i make like, promo? You can't do a promo. You do the record on Monday. Put it out Tuesday because you're going to have a week of promo. In that one week, somebody's going to take your shit and put it out themselves. It's like, it's that easy at this point. You know, you look at some of these places that are selling music. I mean, it's an absolute fucking free-for-all right now. People are just taking whatever they want to take. No, I know. You go on YouTube.
0: Well, let's start. Okay, so now the three main companies, Sony, Universal, and Warner. and Wea, yeah. okay, have now pretty much went out and are going out and buying everyone's catalogs. Like yes, Gregor. yes. So we're going to get to the point that the big three will own everything soon. Yes. But my issue is with the big three is if someone is sampling something or reworking, most of the people who are curating the back
1: end don't even know what's in those catalogs. Listen, listen this is the listen, biggest. Listen, my job, I was middle management. So I was senior director of crossover music, okay? They basically, when, when they redid the model of the music business, they got rid of my entire group of people. What they said was, you know what? We're going to have the executives making a couple of million a year and we're going to have some $20,000 a year interns. That's it. That's what we're filling the company with. So, Lenny Fontana has an idea. Who do you call? Johnny D. Yo, listen, Johnny, I'm thinking I want to do an Aretha Franklin thing. She just passed away. Maybe we can do a thing. I have this thing. I have this artist that sounds like a... Wow, Lenny, that's a great fucking idea. I go to my boss. Listen, got this guy big fan of Aretha. She just passed away. We could probably use that and we can move things, blah, blah, blah. Without me in there, without a Hosh in there, without a Frank Sorallo in there, who are you going to talk to? A 20-year-old who doesn't know who Aretha Franklin is? How are you going to sell that? Well, that's what, are ch- well then, that's what are the chances of you getting to an executive? What executive? That's right. What I'm who- saying. It's not even going to happen. So so people like myself, Hosh Garelli, Frank Sorallo, people that were in the that was that was more important than almost anything else the fact that listen i loved. i gotta say in all of my time doing records of course i love giving mixes to my boys and stuff but to give sneak a record robbie tronco a major label record he gave king brit his first major label record he did it. um i love you always forever donna lewis um Harry Romero and fucking, um, what's his name, Juan, the, the Aaliyah, Oman's first jungle remix, Aaliyah. I love that. Like, I, I, that makes me happier as an A&R person, as a record guy, than the hits. To say, I gave this guy an opportunity. I gave Spinner to Lee, I mean, um, to Mia. I think that was his first major label remix. There were all these guys that would never even be you know, even near the major label thing. And I was trying all my years to kind of, you know, I'm in the underground, I'm in the major label thing. You know, my day was split. I'd be in Atlantic all day, then go to Northcott, then go to my office in the film center building on Ninth Avenue or wherever I would go. So I was constantly trying to merge the two worlds. And I think that was... um I, I think that was kind of like my calling, you know, it's like f- for me to get the opportunity that word I keep using to, you know, be there and be in a meeting. And I could tell, I mean, the BB wines is a perfect example. You know, I, I, Craig Talman called me up on a conference call one day and says, I was on my conference call Tuesday. That was the promotion conference call. So my assistant calls me and says, listen, Craig's on the phone. So I go pick up the phone. And Craig, classic Craig, because this is how he operates. Hey, Johnny, you're on with BB. That was it. That's my fucking, okay, here, get ready. All, the, all, all, your, all your warm up, here you go. Now, BB Wines, I was like, oh my, I was having a heart attack. BB and CC, I was a tremendous fan, the whole fucking thing. So I get on the phone with BB. So Craig is selling BB Wines Johnny Day. And he's basically saying, listen, this guy's gonna fucking give you a record. And BB's being the biggest fucking asshole in the world. Now I'm crushed because I'm like, first of all, I want to kill Craig. Cause like no warning, no, could have fucking Blackberry text, nothing. Boom, pick up, hey, you're on with BB. And I'm like, and he probably didn't pay attention because he was Craig's head seven different places at once. So BB's like, yeah, yeah, like being what a fucking idiot. I mean, I couldn't believe. It's like, you know, I wanted to meet Joe DiMaggio and you finally meet him. and He's kind of a douche. You're like, oh, you know, I wish I didn't meet the fucking guy. So I finally had to kind of check him. I said, Bebe, you know what? Listen, I got these guys I'm going to bring you with and we'll go from there. Doesn't work, doesn't work. I had to be a dick and that was it. Okay, fast forward. I don't know, a week later, I go, Kenny and Louie and Beebe. we have a fucking meeting, okay? B.B. falls in love with Kenny and Louie. Okay, falls in love with them. The whole fucking thing. They not only are going to remix a record, but they're going to produce. So thank you, album version is produced by Masters at Work. Now, if I wasn't there, were Kenny and Louie going to ever have an opportunity to work with B.B. Wines? I mean, maybe. Wasn't going to happen then. I was the fucking guy that did that. And then what happened? We're doing the remix, the dance mix. And B.B. in the middle of recalling himself every five minutes because every take was one more brilliant than the next. And he kept, nah, kept going like, I don't know what the fuck this guy is. It was just every take was better. Goes on the phone. Doesn't tell us what he's doing. He goes, this, this, we need backgrounds. And who walks in 25 minutes later? Luther Vandross from Fonzie Thornton. You know, I almost fall off the fucking chair. Kenny Louie are kind of bugging. They do their thing. So Luther is just the fucking uh every bit of the legendary, incredible fucking guy you want him to be. I'm dying. I'm fine. I can't even because I because I was such a BB guy. And then after listening to him sing, I was converted. I was like, this guy's the best guy I've ever heard in my life, you know? And now Luther comes in and Luther comes off almost like second place. The fucking BB wine is. It was like a mind fuck. All right, then what happened? Kenny and Louie wanted up producing Luther. That all happened. Real. So now, oh, Johnny D, you got an ego. Oh, you got a big mouth. Me, me, me. I don't know if that's me, me, me. That's fact. That happened. Jodie Watley, okay? One of my favorite people on the planet. Love it to death. She got signed to Atlantic. Everybody, don't mention Shalimar. She's having a hard time. This there's, there's a... Uh, Behind the Music, uh, True Hollywood, whatever the fuck story of Shalomar and she, uh, Howard was don't talk about Shalomar. Two seconds into meeting her, we were fucking right into the Big Fun album. She knew in two seconds I was the guy to talk about Shalomar with. Jody, one of my favorite fucking people, who do I put her with? Kenny and fucking Louie. What do they do? They produce a cover of Ramona Brooks, I Don't Want You Back, which the album never came out, but it was brilliant. And I had the remix off the hook. I also had Soul Solution do it. Could they have done that? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, they've done a lot of shit, but I was the guy. So if that's ego, I guess I have a fucking ego. And I guess I have an ego with Kings of Tamara and fucking the Braxton. The Braxton's. Braxton's, for example. LA Reed's brother comes to work for the company. Atlantic Records, low-key. Very rock driven at this time. I'm there. We have hooting the Blowfish, Kid Rock, Matchbox Twenty. Not a black act, even peeping a little bit. This guy walks down the fucking hallway. He's got a fur fucking coat on, diamonds on his fingers that uh, you could fucking blind uh, countries. Okay, hair slick. back. I mean, fucking guy walks in the cologne. He probably had a fucking fifty thousand dollar outfit on. I walk into his office. He said, hey, what's up? I'm Bryant Reed. Nice to meet you. Bryant Reed was the guy who signed Tony Braxton. He said, listen, man, I'm bringing, I'm bringing Tony's sisters in. Uh, we got to do some shit. I heard you're the guy. One of the guys in the urban department said, yo, Johnny D's the fucking guy. You got Because fortunately for me, people knew I knew black music better than fucking most. And I wasn't faking it. So Bryant met me. Well, in- I think in-
0: because they understood that you... You understood both sides of the game. You yes. understood the actual music, and you also understood the R&B and corporate departments that you were going to have to be working alongside. Yeah, but 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 that's the battle. I, I, we all know that battle. There, it was in every but, but, but major. But as, far
1: as, far as just even the music I listening to Harold Melvin all day, or you know, fucking uh, Alexander O'Neal, whatever I was listening to. Like, I was constantly, you know, I wasn't sitting there listening to kid rock records. So they knew, like, this is a fucking white guy listening to black music all day. Like, he's more, he's a black guy. This is, not you know, this is a guy who's, in other words, Brian, you're a black guy coming as the head of, you know, like, the black, like, this is your guy. Just don't look at him like he's gonna, you know, do some fucking stupid shit. Anyway, I sit down in his office. He goes, yo, man, I was just coming in here and I just heard the boss on the radio. Yo, man, I, we got to have the girls cover that. You got any people that could do that? Who do I call? Kenny Louie. Boom. Now, would Brian Reed ever know Masters at Work? He didn't know them when he walked in that day. So, <laughs> you know, I'm not blowing myself. That's just what the fuck happened. I mean, I just, these are things with the opportunity. I had to make the decision. Who do I give it to? Now, Kenny and Louie, obviously, internationally, the biggest motherfuckers. I was extremely, I mean, I was like living with fucking Kenny. I was in the studio with these guys all the time. I didn't give them every remix. Not everything was for them. But I think what I gave them was great for them. Whether it was the BB, the fucking Jody, the Braxtons, the um, Gypsy Kings. You know, whatever it was, it was their kind of thing. Tommy Musto, another one, my brother. I gave him records that I thought were more, you know, for him. And I and I, and I try to do this all the time. Obviously, you forget people sometimes. Sometimes some people aren't on your mind. It, it, that's just how the game is. But for the most part, I think I was pretty on point. And I thought I gave people, I think I gave the people who needed to be there what they needed. Because I think, I, as an AR person, I will say this, and I'll let you talk, but I will say this as an AR person, if I call Lenny Fontana to do a mix, and I recall you three times, that means you weren't, I fucked up, because you weren't the call. Because I shouldn't have to recall you three times. Like, I feel, I feel that when I make the call and say, this guy is for this project, that should be, and eighty-five percent, you know what? Wow, we gotta work a little things here and there. It shouldn't be a three, four time, back or forth. That's my feeling, anyway. Can That's I, I
0: mean. can I give you a question from the audience? Yeah, uh, this is a really good question. Alvaro Jims, he's he sent this about ten minutes ago. And I've been I've been holding this back because you're just at that point. It's perfect timing. And he says, Johnny, do you think that people perceive you as less credible because of your ethnicity? And how much does that play a role when you're sitting in that chair?
1: I absolutely think that we all, every one of us, I I, I don't believe anybody who's going to sit here and say, I don't see color. I I, I believe, listen, I remember years ago. There was a backlash on the Puerto Ricans with the black people saying that Puerto Ricans aren't really house, house music is a black thing. I've seen DJs come on and say, if you're not a black gay DJ, you're not a real DJ. I've seen the most outlandish shit said. listen, music to me is colorless. Okay. Me, I'll go from Zeppelin to fucking run DMC to old dirty bastard to fucking Astrid Gilberto. Like I'm to me, I'm that guy. I'm not saying you have to be that. You could just be into fucking rock, or whatever you into. But I think race and the color of your skin, your your um your ethnicity, plays an incredible role in this. I think that it's the better people who can see past it. You know, I go. I was a guy who grew up. My father was very much like, "Hey, Lenny Fontana, well, sit down. have something. Lenny, tell me about yourself. What are you? Oh, you're Puerto Rican and Italian. Oh." My father, he would use that and he wanted to get closer to Lenny. That was his thing. So you know what? Everything I know about the Puerto Ricans, I'm going to throw with him. The Italian stuff, he knows that, and I know already. So whatever. And that's going to be his way of getting close to Lenny. I grew up the same way. I meet somebody. What are you? You're Polish, you this, you that, whatever. And my ex-wife would be like, oh, that's so, you sound ignorant. It's so. I said, no. That's something that, I think I can get closer with someone because if I know one funny thing about a Chinese person or a Puerto Rican person or whatever, I think that becomes the icebreaker and the connection. Because I have been in positions, I've been in 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 a, a meeting with a black department where I'm trying to tell people that Pharrell is going to be the next big thing, and I've had a whole black department look at me, and he had just done this record for Mystical called "Shake Your Ass," and this girl gets up and says, "Johnny." That record's not big because it's Pharrell. That record's big because it's Mystical. I said, no, Mystical is irrelevant. My fucking sister's ass could have sang that fucking song. It's because of Pharrell. That, and then like a year and a half later, Pharrell destroyed the fucking music business. But I'm a white guy in a black meeting telling black people, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Very hard. It's, It's a... It's it's a, I've been in many meetings that way, many meetings. I've been the other way where you're like the guy who's white, but musically I'm black and I'm in some white meeting and I'm listening to their outlandish bullshit about what their philosophy is on the streets or oh, we're going to wrap a truck. And like, people are like, what does that mean to wrap a truck? So the answer is yes. Um, it exists. It's very hard to navigate because, I really always saw myself more black and more urban than white when it comes to music. I don't let it affect me. I do, however, hate the fact that when I go into a meeting with people who don't know me, what are they gonna say? Hey, I'm an Italian guy. Here he is, white guy. Oh, another guy thinks he knows fucking black records. Like, and then I gotta like sun them, and I like to sun them because when I when I drop the bombs, it's it's next level war. Because the artillery is unbelievable when I drop it, but it's uh, you got to do it. Okay,
0: so Hoshcarelli says because Johnny, you know soul. Haskerelli, my boy. Kareem Alvarez is saying, "Preach, brother, preach." And Will Milton and all of them are here—they're all lined up, li- been listening to you. And I got thank little, you guys, thank you. I got a personal question to ask. Yes, this is asked of me. And I answered it my way, but I always know this is a good question. What's the biggest thing you regret that
1: you would want to do over differently? Well, if listen, I have- could I could answer that and say you can't have regrets, but listen, I you know, unfortunately, we, you know, we we have, we all have them. You know, there are there are people who. Get philosophical and say, "Oh, you can't, you can't let that weigh you down." Whatever. Um, listen, I will say this: I, I don't know about. I mean, listen, I have regret on some personal shit with property and selling things, and maybe some money things that were done stupidly. Um, a regret, which isn't really a regret, but something that I wish I—I I always felt that if I was older, I would have done so much. Like when I look at Hosh. You know, working with Clive. I say to myself, and look at I mean Almond Erdogan to me, number one five, I mean, if I could have been around Alman Erdogan days, like when he was in his prime, I would have killed for that. But I You talking it,
0: with him and Jerry Wexler it, were
1: making all those records about yeah, yeah, but, but, but but the latter part like with Clive with Aristotle like when he signed Kashif and he was bringing with a Michael Walden in to do uh thing and Melissa Manchester with a reef and I I always felt the same way I was, whether it's Musto, Masters at Work, and Todd, or whatever, I would have been that guy to like secure Narda, and Kashif, and fucking, like all that level of producer, not remixer. That's something I feel like, if I would have had that opportunity, I think, because I learned the business fast. You know, it was... I got thrown into the company. I didn't know what promote. I mean I knew of promotion and record pools, but I really didn't know. And when I really got to know mix show and radio and ad day and corruption and payola and all the other bullshit, I was like this is some fucking horrible horrible industry. And people would come in with their daughters and they'd like want to, you know, oh my daughter wants to be in the music. I'm like, "Listen, no, don't fucking... They look at me like was was fucking crazy. Girls will leave my room crying. And I'm like, rather than being the prick that, like, is trying to get over on these people's daughters, I was looking at them like, well, my daughter said, listen, go home, go to fucking college, and become a dentist. Like, I, I was... Uh, I just saw stuff that was... How do you come back from it? The male chauvinistic... Th- that side of it was horrible. You had the men's club. You had... Listen... There was the the, the, the the gay movement coming into it. That was a whole other side of it. Which, um what if somebody was saying, "Oh, you're a gay basher"? All of a sudden, that was a thing. I had a, I had a problem with a guy in Florida one time, and he tried to like say I was a gay basher. I'm just like, where does that come from? I think you're an asshole. I don't give a fuck what your sexual preferences. We have a problem over this music. Now you're going to take it there. And thank God, I had people. Friends of mine in the gay community that immediately stepped up and, like, yo, like Johnny D's not that. Like, what are you fucking crazy? But you know what? That could fucking take you right out. You know, you get something like that, like somebody, oh, I saw this guy playing with a girl in the park. Like, you know, you, these are things that with the social media and the world we're living in, I mean, you know, anything could be taken out of context. You know, I mean, listen, I'm not saying I'm the fucking most politically correct guy on the planet by any means. You know, I've said, but I'm a funny guy. I try to fucking make lighter things. And like I said before, you know, what
0: do you mean by, what do you mean by funny? Like clown, like funny clown? <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly. Like I make you laugh. Exactly. Listen, I will tell you a funny story about Hosh Carelli since he was on there. So, you know, I used to go to all the record companies in the late 80s and everybody was like, Hosh, Hosh, Hosh. I'm like what 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 the fuck is a Hosh, you know? And that, that was kind of like who what, what is Hosh? Oh Hosh and Joey Carvalho and this guy and everybody was talking about Hosh and all these records I wanted, I'd go in there go on their desk and I'd see it, you know, send this out to Hosh. I'm like, who is this Hosh guy? So Tony Monty and I, I used to make when I got into the business and I found I met Hosh and Hosh came to the record side of it. I said, it was so funny. I used to use Hosh's name as like it went from a noun to a verb. Like you're giving me a Hosh, you're giving me a Hosh. Like Hosh became seven words. You, you could be Hosh, you could get a Hosh. Was like this godly thing. So it's um every time I mean I, I love I love and Hosh supports my radio station. i so and I'm so happy because I know he gets it and that's really what it's about. But I just every time I hear the word Hosh, I just think about not ever knowing this guy and hearing his name to the point of like who, what, why is a Hosh? And then um we got the Hosh thing. So Hosh is coming up, right? We gotta do the Hosh thing. We gotta get Hosh on, but
0: I'll tell you who stepped in. We got Ralphie D from Odyssey two thousand one. E. Nice and here's I'll a here's again. a name I haven't s I know him very well from back in days. So do you from DMC. Let's say hello to Guy Ornadell. Guy Ornadell very his, answer right to you, there. his answer to you is,
1: I feel like I'm back in 1991 New York running DMC. That was it, and guy. Listen, guy had a guy had a great run over there. That was that was a great time, man. That was DMC. That was like remember they had that office with those windows right in the Village yeah. on Broadway? Oh man, over 90. Guy was it? It was at
0: 920 Broadway on the that corner. Was, that was
1: just <laughs> like that was like a whole other um. It was Just something about well, them. you
0: know, when back in those days we would run around to everybody's every label all day and, and we sit down. I, if I walked in your office, I was there for two hours. I left there, you got a call, Lenny. Go see blah blah blah. Go see Tommy over here. There was, there was nothing so, like, that. Go, was nothing Emotive, like go Strictly, that. go to Emotive, go to Strictly, go to uh, uh, Bobby Short MCA. Go to it was a crazy time. There was nothing. Listen,
1: like, I, I, re- I remember one time. record horroring, I, I, record horror. I remember I went to Atlantic Records. Before I was working there, I was up there going to see somebody. And um I went to the bathroom and there was a guy standing next to me, really, really short, you know. And you know, just I'm not really paying attention to him, whatever. So, you know, I did go wash my hands, I leave the place forever. All of a sudden I like, I come out, the guy says, Peter, Peter. His manager's running after him. It was Peter Frampton. Now, growing up as a kid, everybody had the Frampton Comes Alive album. It was a gay soul. He appeared to be about twelve feet tall. He was the shortest guy, and it always blew my mind. But that was one of those record days. With you know? really, with really long hair, and he probably didn't yeah, have as long yeah, hair. Yeah, short. He almost like Tommy. Yeah, Nappy. you're not Nappy. looking Nappy. at him you know, the same almost, way. He almost looked like Tommy Nappy. That was um, but yeah, I remember. I, 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 oh, is, I he remember. Same, is he same height as Tommy? He wasn't much taller, I'll tell you now. But I tell oh, you wow. I'll tell you one more crazy one. I go see Joey Carvello. And Carvello was, you know, Carvello, I looked at him. Carvello has always been out of his mind. He's never, I mean, just, I'm going for a walk. And he walk around the corner. It just, it just you don't know what's going to go on, Carvello. So one day I walk into his office and he goes, Hey, John, hey, come over here. You got to take a walk. So I go walk with him. And this guy named Lou Sicarezza, who I wound up working with years later in Atlantic, which is a great lunatic guy. I go into his office and Phil Collins is sitting there. Well, he's standing up and they had Chinese food. And he's sitting there eating his Chinese food. And he, he shake his hand, whatever, the whole thing. And Carvalho says, I got to show you this video. And he puts a video in. And the video, it's a girl doing some nasty thing into a guy's mouth, right? So now Phil Collins is sitting there eating this Chinese food. I'm trying to even understand because is out of his fucking mind. So it's Carvello loose Rez, and myself, Phil Collins. And what does Joey do? He reverses it. So it looks like <laughs> it looks like the guy shooting it into tar- I mean, listen, you know it's one of those I never it's in the book and everything, but you know, the fact that it was Joey Carvello with Phil Collins. You know, but yeah, I mean, listen. That, those were the. Hey, but wait, wait, wait. Things. Let me let me get the picture correct. Phil
0: Collins is eating like this, right? He's he eating. His... What? Hey, you know what? So you he 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 stopped. He he's eat, he's watching the. So he's got his eyes peered on Joey's Joey's TV. You're watching sick. this, and you're probably going, "I don't believe what I'm, This guy's eating. Don't believe it.
1: Don't believe it. Don't believe it. It didn't bother him. He had a good appetite. Phil. Susudio.
0: Susudio, Susudio baby. Yes. So, uh, Johnny, I think we're at a point now. What? We're going to wrap this right here to the next part and I'll let you explain this. We understand what you did then. We understand when you were a young kid, we understand you grew up in the business, you broke your ass, you helped open a lot of doors for a lot of guys because you cared for them. You loved their music. You were a big fan of them. Became lifelong friends with some of these people. It
1: starts, you know what? Let me just say that, man. It all starts with being a fan of music. End of story. All about that love for music is the number one reason for all of this.
0: Okay. You
1: got the radio station going on.
0: Where do you see yourself taking this all? Where? What's the next plan? What's the big plan for you? What are you thinking? I,
1: I, listen, I, I, as I said before, I think it'll be really hard for me to get back in on the other side, but I would love to get in a position, I don't want to say Spotify series, but one of these places where I'm in a position to educate, to give my knowledge, you know, I think what I offer is important. It, I need to reach more people and more people, books, the station, whatever it is. I just want more music to be exposed to people. It's like new, old, whatever genre. Um that I really feel that's the reason I'm here. Like I, I look at things and I, I've had a phenomenal career. I I can't look back and like I said, I really I don't really have many regrets on the, the, the music side as far as my job is concerned. But I feel like with the station and the way it connects with people, the way it connects with me, I listen I'm a listener. So I program, but I listen to it constantly and I remove myself as the person that's putting it together. Just like I listening to, oh shit, that was Bull Donaldson into Zeppelin into fucking uh, Gotta See You Tonight, Bob Roy. It's like, who, who's doing this? Nobody's doing it, which is great. Um, so I really want to just keep moving forward. And you, you know what? I will say this. I, I want to be a person that's a little bit more like this. Because I find that most people who do things in this business or do anything today, they're looking at social media. You only have this many views. You only have this many followers. That is the wrong way to live life. I look at it like when my time is right, whether my book is going to start selling New York Times things or my station is going to get 5 trillion listeners, it's going to happen when it's going to happen. I don't want to do any false bullshit and to trickery to, oh, wow, look, he's got 10 million followers. I'm not that guy. I just want to focus on what I'm doing and keep going the way I'm going. I don't want to be distracted. I think that's going to be the hardest part for me because whenever you meet with people, what do people say? Oh, he's got Lenny Fontana. is great. How many followers does he have? Oh, he's said listen, Lenny, you put me in touch with people about gigs. You know, I got very turned off by one of them with, oh, how many people are you going to draw? The fuck do I know? Like, uh, who, who the fuck knows that? I've seen the biggest names in their hometown with seven people in a fucking club. I mean, who's, who's to say? And I found it more insulting just for the fact that I've been in the fucking game for as long as I have been. So um, I'm just going forward. I'm trying to just really have the blinders on And not be as concerned with a lot of the outsides. Of course, I'm affected, but I have to. I have to stay the course of what I want to do. So whether that's when I'm putting out records. Oh, by the way, I want to give my man Will Alonzo a shout out. I have another label on Brooklyn South, which I've had for a while, and he uh, connected with me a while ago. So listen, man, why don't we do some collabo shit? I'll A and R it. I'll have a whole sound I want to bring, and it's been really successful, and thanks to Track Source, and, um, you know, all... Wait, 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 uh, wait, one last question. Petey Cuomo. Petey, my man.
0: Yeah, Brooklyn, another Brooklynite. He wants to know how you came into this craziness of collecting kicks. Your sneakers. Um,
1: I think that was a Kenny thing. I think one of the most dangerous, one of the most dangerous things for me was, uh, being very close with Kenny. Kenny was Kenny and I were very similar with records and culture. And Kenny was a sneaker guy and I caught it from him. And I mean, I haven't really collected in a long time, but I had over 600 at one point. And uh, yeah, it was it was dangerous when Kenny and I were together. Very dangerous. So I'm calming down.
0: And on that note. So, just, take, thank, thank you. you
1: for having me and uh, thank you for all that. Uh, well, oh, move.
0: sorry, Petey, Queens guy. I'm sorry. I thought yes, another book. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I Petey, I apologize. Yes. Queens.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: Kareem Alvarez, thanks. Fareeb, you. I love my man.
1: Fareeb. He loves Fareeb.
0: you. Uh, Ralphie, John Donato came on. Norbert, Jimmy B from Staten Island. Jimmy all, B. And I want to say a big shout out to the one that broke a lot of records for all of us on his radio station in the Bristol area,
1: Delhi G. Deli, Deli G, absolutely, man. Deli G. Uh, shout out to my man CJ and Ashley. CJ's. I got another uh, one. Oh, and i also ask one quick question. I saw you and Musto
0: starting to get back in the studio is this going to be something constant is, is oh, yes stepping, yeah yeah is I
1: stepping back in what's the story yes. so, so yeah i mean nikki and i are doing records i'm doing records with a bunch of people tommy and i started a thing called organic disco got a lot of things coming uh mikey morrow's involved with some stuff we got a lot of really oh, mikey morrow too oh okay cool i got a lot of cool disco kind of stuff coming and um, yeah, listen, man, I sat back for years and watched a lot of people playing with my tapes. So I decided to... play with oh, your tapes. And by the way, I will I will end on this one. I did a Candy State mix of my favorite record of all time, When You Wake Up Tomorrow, with Percussion by Joe Corsell. So let, let's not... Let's not... Uh, you know, that, that, that was the little cherry on the cake there. When you hear that mix, that's going to be some next level. I should have actually. Get, I should have given you the chance out, but when you wake up tomorrow. But anyway, it's. I did this mix, and Joe Claussell blessed me with. We had a good time, man. That's going to be coming soon. So we got we got some things going. We got some things going on.
0: On that note, God bless Johnny. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving
1: Don't Thanksgiving leave yet, again.
0: Johnny. Don't leave yet, yet, because I got to thank you, okay. everyone. Check this out. So I'm staying in house music next week. I'm bringing a female with power to the game and she's going to talk her story. We got the incomparable Crystal Waters coming on nice. to tell us her journey with the Basement Boys, coming up in the business, creating one of the most iconic La La songs that we all know and went full pop commercial.